Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Pour Over Podcast, what is an extension of Peaks and Valleys. In this space, we seek to share the table with storytellers and seekers alike, hopefully and almost certainly over a great cup of coffee because we know that brings people to the table. We seek and want to see you flourish in your mental health journey. I'm your host, Jonathan Coggins. And I'm Kyle Ridgely, and I hope that this space is safe and inclusive for all. Welcome to the table. Hello, peaks and valleys, and welcome to another episode of the Pour Over Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jonathan Coggins, and I'm joined by our other host, Kyle Ridgely. What's up? Kyle, how are you doing today, sir? You know, I mean, I'm doing pretty good. Um, all things considering, I know every time we get on here, it's always Debbie Downer, probably, when you talk about what, what's my life look like, but um, recently moved, so that was been a, a challenging week to try to do all those things and all the money that it involves, no matter no matter how or how much you're putting in or who you're living with or any number of things, there's always this never ending sea of money you have to spend to get there. Um, Moving is expensive. It's uh, so, I mean, it's a good thing. It's going to help me, you know, get more stable financially and find a job and, you know, things like that. Cause things are just, regardless of having a job or not, you know, um, things are expensive anyway nowadays. So um, regardless of if you have a job or not, um, you know, um, so it's just kind of navigating that and, you know, getting all the to-dos off the list to like transition your life, unpacking, changing a dress with every, every bank or whatever you have and, you know, um, storage if you need it and all these different things and making your help or helping yourself to feel comfortable in the space that you're in and, um, the list grows on the things you need to make your space more comfortable for you that are, that are necessities. And so that's been, so over the last three, four days, I've been doing that and checking out of the old place and doing all that and signing things and, you know, just all the, all the to-dos that go into that, not only just managing the personal things and all that stuff. So that's been my life for the past week or so since we've um last had our last episode um so yeah that's how my life overall I guess doing pretty good just kind of uh looking at the future and seeing what that looks like and that's kind of vague right now so we'll see what happens so yeah I get that all too well um I just did that in this past January and I, I know the feeling. And plus, I was with you the past two weeks, you know, moving um, our friends, Hannah and Tim, and then you. It's a lot. My back hurt the past week. Yeah. I wish that movers were less expensive because that would be a phenomenal, beautiful thing to have when you move. But it's, uh, yeah, they're expensive. <laughs> Not only the equipment you have to have, but then the labor you're paying for the movers. So, 
but it would be amazing. It would be. Maybe maybe I should just do what I said to you when we were moving, Kyle. Just just start my own moving company, you know. Mm-hmm. So then I have a whole, I have a whole crew. Whenever my friends move, you know, hook them up. Whenever I move again, if slash when that happens, I have a whole crew to just come help me move. Mm-hmm. What what will we call it, Kyle? What will we call it? Yeah, what what will we call my moving company? Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. Well, you couldn't use two men in a truck because I started used. That's true. Uh, That's true. Um, our friend Tim suggested J and K Moving Company. There, Jonathan and Kyle, but I ain't gonna be doing the moving. I'll be the bookkeeping, <laughs> but I ain't doing the moving. <laughs> You're just gonna be pushing the papers, huh? Yeah, the, all the papers. I'll do the papers. That'll be good. I'll make all my my uh, risk pay will be paper cuts. So <laughs> paper cuts. So. <laughs> Goodness gracious! Goodness. All right. So for this week. Um, we are going to hear our host Kyle's story today. If y'all listened into our previous episode, I shared my journey and story navigating my own mental health and uh, faith transitions and deconstruction and a lot of those different things just to, again, just, just so you our listeners get to know us a little better. And then hopefully um, you are encouraged by our, our stories and journeys and you find something useful for your own journey within our stories. Um, we've said this a lot on this podcast. We think sharing stories are powerful. It is helpful. It is healing. It is a lot of good things come from sharing your story. And so we we felt the need, the right time to do this. So with that, we'll just dive right in to Kyle's story. And I want to start here. I want to start here. Because you you didn't ask me on, on my episode, Kyle. And it's okay. Like it's okay. <laughs> I I've talked a lot about my coffee interest on this podcast already. So <laughs> But I will ask you, our icebreaker, what is Kyle's favorite coffee and or brew method? Mm. Mm. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I I love the pour over method, but I have not done it in a while um, just by myself. I mean, you taught me how to do pour over. So um but normally I like the the way that the feel of the coffee is in a pour over method. So I guess I would say that that is my number one favorite. Um, so if I do have the opportunity to go to like a local coffee shop that does, you know, especially roasts and things like that, um, I ask for that. It takes a little longer, but I feel like it's well worth the wait. Um, I would say that my favorite like roast, is that what you, you said? Favorite roast? Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, would be uh, Ethiopians. I like Ethiopian like 
blends uh just something about it it's something like and you know i like colombian too sometimes but i that's just my tried and true is like ethiopian so if i have a good uh you know single origin ethiopian blend from a local coffee shop or like someone who carries a different roaster you know hey do me a pour over version of that and so we're good so heck yeah my method i don't know what it is i don't you know i've, I've tried all the other methods and like french press and you know the drip and like you know there's just something you can't beat with a with a, like the pour over method is just something about the taste is just wonderful yeah yeah well i mean pour over just out of a lot of other brewer options out there like the french press or an aeropress or just regular drip pour over just has like the best um um what's the i'm looking for a word here i will find the word extraction it it mm-hmm. it left me for a second there i mean pour over has just the best extraction when it comes to extracting all the goodness out of you know roasted coffee mm-hmm. yeah man ethiopian good choice like mm-hmm. i i i love african coffees like they're some of my favorites like i i have a uh, a natural Rwandan right now that is mm-hmm. like strawberry, like jammy, like that's mm. it is so good. Like, mm. so yes, yeah, yeah. The best. Two thumbs up on the the choice of Ethiopian African coffees, just all around her. Yeah, nominal. Those are usually my go to. Anything uh, African continent, you know. That's, yeah, that's it. yeah. I mean, they're they're usually the fruitiest yeah so really really good so always good choice yeah nice all right well where i want to to start uh with you kyle and just um i guess this just can be our guiding point um I'm going to start on the opposite end. I'm going to do it different. I'm going to shake it up a little bit. I'm going to start on the opposite end um, from where you started with me. Where, so this, this term, actually, let me back up a little bit. This is where I want to start. So, in in your own journey with navigating a lot of the stuff that you know we talk about and starting this podcast and peaks and valleys and and it being a place where you know we've we've said before like w- one of our goals hopefully is to dismantle and deconstruct harm, harmful or just bad views of mental health within the church Take us through your own mental health journey. How those things shifted for you? What and when did you see those harmful or bad views within your own Christian tradition, you know, or your faith journey? And where did that take you? Hmm. Yeah, so... uh mental health wise i feel like 
Gosh, uh, it's it's been hard to like write down these things and like think about what I'm going to say because there's just so much. And so finding the right thing, the right, you know, the point to make and and kind of align it with my story has been difficult. Um, and I think growing up, I was, I would say I was a normally average happy kid, you know, I hadn't, like no, most of us would say that, you know, just had no cares or worries, not for every person, but, you know, um, just went through life and I didn't really see um, I didn't understand or comprehend the harm that the community that I was, I grew up in was for so many and including myself. Um, I didn't see it. I didn't register it. Um, I just saw it as a place where it was home. It was a place that I met many of my friends growing up and um, I'd always had kind of a, a the church world, I guess, had always a special place in my heart because my um, grandfather, who I was very close with, um, growing up, I never really was close. I was close with my father to a certain extent, and in later years, we we kind of fell out um, of contact um, for a number of reasons. But um, my grandfather was a, a Southern Baptist ordained uh, minister uh, for over sixty years um, before he retired, and and so I remember going to church with him and 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 being involved in. And he he would pastor more of the smaller churches in the middle of nowhere that didn't have a lot of resources, and and so I felt like I, in some way I was helping and, and resourcing and being available uh, for them. And I had a lot of genuine. I felt like at that time when I was a young kid, not knowing. Um, that's all I ever knew. That's that's what I grew up in. Is the moment I could have conversations and 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 have uh, have an original thought, you know, of my own. It was um, it was always embedded and always integrated into that church or religious world. But um, I think as I got older, um, especially like middle school and high school, I felt um, when I started kind of in those years, you know, you start like developing your own friendships. You start moving away from your families. And like, as far as like going out more and hanging out with your own friends and, you know, you start moving out into the world from your parents and you start developing your own relationships. I started kind of seeing this, something wasn't right. Something wasn't like clicking in the way that I was taught who God is and who people are. Um, I felt as though there was just, I couldn't put at, at, at a young age, I couldn't really put my finger on it, but it always felt like there was something out of place What the you know, the faith community was telling me, it's like, you know, everything's bad. Like everything is bad. Don't, don't associate with people with tattoos. Don't associate pe with people who drink. Don't associate with people. I mean, there was just this long list that would just continue to grow over time. And so I felt very sheltered. I think when I started going into high school and middle school, um, because it was so wired into me to like, stay away. It's bad. It's no, you're going to, you know, it's that way of sin and you're going to go down this dark path and you're going to get trapped and you're going to go to hell. And it's like this, this fear tactic that is used a lot. And so I felt like to some degree, I, I felt like I wasn't able to develop, you know, in my, with my peers, I don't feel like I was able to develop true and genuine relationships with them as I got older, especially as a preteen, preteen and a teenager. Um, you know, as time went on, I started uh, getting involved in other things and other groups that were away from the religious community and uh, started seeing that that narrative wasn't really true, um, that it wasn't really the fact or the facts as they were, as they were. Um, or are. And um, 
of course, as we grow up, we make decisions, we make mistakes. And so I started, you know, going out with different people groups that I thought I'd never, you know, hang out with. And that was the narrative that kind of changed for me um, starting out is that I don't feel like I, uh, I don't feel like that I, you know, I, I really don't feel like I really had genuine relationships, I think, growing up because of that fact. Um, so for me, I guess mental health wise, I think that started uh, to pick up in high school. Um, I started developing a lot of uh, depression um, and anxiety, like severe anxiety, um, where everything, whether it was, a, it could be something trivial as a test, it could be my future, it could be what college I was going to, which I think we all can relate on that level. Um, but my depression was a little bit different, I feel like, for my own experience. And it didn't really stem from anything in particular. It just stemmed from, you know, not having control, feeling like I wasn't, I didn't fit in with my church crowd because I didn't really feel the same way they did a lot of times. Like I didn't really always agree, you know. Um, in the community, I think you're just trained to regurgitate these things to protect yourself. So in public, I would use all these, you know, in my church groups and small groups and youth groups, I would always use the lingo to make it appear that, you know, to keep myself protected and not be, you know, ostracized or attacked or any number of those things. And I think we get so well at that um, within the context that I come, but both me and uh, you come from, Jonathan, at just acting or playing the part so that you're not, uh, you're not put in a, in a box or you're not like labeled as other, or nobody wants to hang out with you. And so I felt like I was two different people in my, what they would call the secular friends and then what they would call the religious friends. And so I felt like I was always in this, uh, balancing act between those two worlds. And, uh, then I joined like, uh, you know, band and I joined uh, the theater. Um, and so those, those things kind of like developed over time where I started distancing myself more and more, uh, from the church crowd. And I, there was a time when I didn't even go to youth group and even was not even involved on Sunday mornings, uh, you know, leading up into the last years of my high school career. So, um, yeah. So, um, so, th so this was in high school. Yeah, so this is like leading up into that. So in high school, probably I'd say sophomore, junior, and senior year, I had no contact with the church as far as like just being involved. Um, I was involved in one like organization that was connected, like a parachurch, what we call it, that was connected to the local church. Um, I won't mention the name, but it was just a group of teens who came together and uh, they go on retreats and they would uh, try to abstain from like, uh, you know, and there can be several organizations like this. So I'm not hinting at any of them because there's several that, that do this nationwide, but, you know, abstinence from sex, drugs, um, and living a lifestyle that would speak to your peers in the school. Um, so that would mean we'd every month we would have a topic and then we would go into classrooms and mentor and talk about topics like drugs and alcohol and things like that. So it was kind of like a mentoring group uh, that would mentor your peers and each other. Um, and so that was only the only exposure, I guess, through those last years of high school that I had with any type of, I guess, religious affiliation, but it wasn't really connected to a local church. If I did go to a church, it was like uh, somebody invited me or I was like the Easter 
and Christmas goer. Um, so uh, that was yeah. kind of, it, it, and I felt like it got there because I just felt like I connected so much better with people who weren't a part of the church than those who were a part of the church. And so, and then my schedule with, um, if any of you, any listeners have been a part of like band or orchestra or theater, it's it's a lot of time. Like it's a lot of devotion and time that takes you away from, you know, um, from church things like church trips and things like that, because it's usually happening during a theater competition or you're getting ready for opening night of a play and like things like that. So I think that it just naturally drove me into that direction. Um, not only how I was feeling or thinking and how different it was from that, that, that world. And then also just how much my time was so geared towards the other groups um rather than the, the religious groups um yeah. so yeah so so you were questioning or wrestling with thinking about your view of your tradition or your views of god or Humanity. is that what you mean yeah, yeah. okay like the way gotcha. that the way that I was taught who, 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 who humanity was and who God was, it didn't add up. Um, right. And as time went on, I, I, I felt like there was, humanity was a lot more complex and I felt like God was a lot more complex than the way that the church made it out to be. Um, so, yeah, I would think that, yeah, just kind of those things were like the, the turning point for me. Um, and then just also my own journey, I feel like was a, uh, just uh, trying to understand myself and like as a human why do I have you know these certain inclinations or why do I why do I you know why do, why do I have this color hair or why do I have this personality or any number of things it just seemed more complex than the way that the scripture put it you know and the way that it was preached to be you know yeah. that that whole dichotomy of inner man outer man like this battle that's going on between the two when there's just a lot more complexity than just that and that simplistic broad brush stroke it's yeah. and usually the outer man is like evil it's the sin of the world and like why we have cancer and why we have the death and war and all these different things and then your inner man also can be bad or always in my case i felt like they always told me it was bad like can't trust yourself uh you know the heart is deceitful of all things you know um so you never could trust anything anyone really um to feel like you were safe because you were your that war was always going on and the solution so, was jesus you know that yeah. was the solution you know so so um correct correct me if i'm wrong obviously this is your story my my assumption here is that the that message that you were receiving about i mean we're talking about suffering here you know like mm -hmm. the the concept of the conversation around suffering you you know you mentioned like cancer and like sickness and all that so i'm assuming that the messages that you were receiving about why bad things happen you were struggling with depression So my assumption here, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you had the thought that my depression is my fault. I must mm -hmm. be doing yeah. something wrong. Mm -hmm. I must be, there must be some unrepentant sin that is causing this. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so I think, um, and I, I thought about this for a really long time, and um, we've been talking about it on this podcast of, you know, me sharing this part of my life. Um, but a lot, and I feel like this just, I feel as though this is the right time and that all the things that we've talked about on this podcast up until this point and not putting this into this podcast and explaining my own, you know, uh, unraveling or deconstructing or whatever number of words you want to use for uh, taking apart those things of your faith is that um, I live my life as a closeted man um, for majority of my middle school years and high school years, although I couldn't really put my finger on it or I could really not really describe it. Um, and I didn't come out, um, until my, I was 29. So 30, 30, yeah, 30. So only been a year and a half ago, um, that I had the courage to actually come out. Um, and so a part of that, I feel like that depression, that anxiety was very linked to, the church and also having to keep this part of myself secret. And I know I talked a little bit earlier when I started doing my spiel about like always having to self-preserve, like always having to play the part and always having to not not, kind of revert eyes away from you in your life. And so I convinced myself for a really long time that it was just, um, it was a number of things that we all tell her that, you know, someone or so you hear all the time, not that we all tell ourselves, but that you hear a lot within the churches. Oh, uh, it's just hormones or, oh, it's just a phase or, oh, no, you're struggling with same sex attraction. And so therefore you need to go and you need to repent or we're going to get you involved in this like conversion camp or we're going to get you involved in you know whatever number of organizations that are out there help you but I did for most of my life even though I didn't live openly as gay as a gay man I did notice people within the church context that did come out and that did share their same-sex feelings about what they were uh, you know questioning or what they were thinking about and that whole bait and switch of like, oh, it's okay. It's just your sin nature. And we're here to help you. We're here to support you. Thanking, thank you for bringing your sin to the light. And what would usually happen is you were otherized. Um, you were ostracized. Um, you were pushed away and you were, sometimes you were um, not included in things that you would normally be included in. Um, but then they'd say on the other hand, like, oh, no, you're still a part of the kingdom and like you're you're working through your struggles. And um, but I just noticed how horrible um, most of those of those who shared that. And I, you know, that the courage that it took, I mean, to share that in the community that it was dangerous to do so. I mean, for your mental health and, you know, for your heart and your soul. I mean, um and, and so a, a lot of what I experienced was more secondhand trauma, just experiencing that of what other people had walked through that were uh, either questioning or uh, were queer within the context of the local church. And that scared me. And um, I would constantly be berated by messages of, you know, you just need to pray harder or you need to ask God to take these desires and feelings away and I'll do it. And I remember growing up, I mean, I remember literally every night just crying 
and cry and like literally on my knees on the floor, begging, begging God to take away whatever was going on inside me that, you know, I'd say all these things like take everything away that's of me and make me more like you. And like, I don't want these feelings. And I, I mean, I remember just like distraught, just literally distraught and it never went away. It never went away. And as I got older, the, you know, the feelings and desires got stronger and I couldn't run from them and I couldn't ask God to take them away because they would never go away. They just got even stronger and stronger and stronger. And so, uh, you know, I, I, that, that's kind of, <laughs> that's, that's a big thing to share on this podcast. And we, we did talk yeah. about sharing it. And I thought that it was a good thing to share, especially being pride month and, my own space with my own experience and sharing that and the representation that that brings and um, how we are passionate about bringing queer voices onto this podcast. And I thought that it wouldn't be a full story of my deconstruction without me sharing that part of my life. Yeah. Um, well, thank, yeah. thanks for, thanks for sharing that, you know, with allowing me and our listeners to, to hold that, you know, that's, it's a big thing to, um, big step, a lot of courage. And we, we applaud you for the courage. Um, so you, you knew that you were gay. I knew something was different. I definitely yeah. knew something was different, but yeah. So, cause you know, you mentioned, you know, like, like many other, um, queer people that grew up in a faith context begging God to take it away, crying over it, you know, et cetera. I'm assuming that this is just another really hard layer, like on top of that. Um, and again, you know, just, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but not only did, I'm assuming, you know, you, you're struggling with depression, you know, through middle school, high school, et cetera. You think that's your fault, right? Because there's some unrepentant sin or whatever. The, the, another layer on top of that, God probably hearing the messages that God detests and hates this particular quote-unquote sin and so that i'm assuming is just another compounded layer of this is this the reason i'm depressed is my fault and this person being that is supposed to love me unconditionally does not like who I am. Am I? I mean, I would say that there was definitely the, some roots in that, that I did feel. And at that time, uh, being involved in a, in a, a, you know, student Christian organization um, on the side, uh, feeling that supposed pull to ministry, that call to ministry that we all, you know, hear a lot. And, um, at that time, it was like, well, how can I be gay and also be in ministry? 
um, those things back then in that context, for me, the way it was communicated is that is a no-no. That is an automatic dismissal from any church. That is an automatic dismissal of qualification as it's outlined in any book of Pauline that you want to read, um, that that's just not of a, a leader within the church um, in the ecclesiastical space. And so for me, I always felt like I never measured up to who God wanted me to be. Um, I felt like I, if I shared that part of myself, would that disqualify me from just being me, just being present to exist? Um, would that put me in danger in a lot of other ways? Um, and I remember even growing up through school that not even in the Christian space and how living in the South, how homophobic that other boys, men, when we talk about on this podcast, toxic masculinity, um, that we all have a sense of like internalized homophobia as men, um, particularly, especially if you're a gay man, um, that there's something wrong with you because you're, it's seen as effeminate or it's seen as that's soft or there, there's something about that that's at odds with the masculine culture that exists in our country and predominantly in the South. And I remember didn't even come out. And I remember, you know, boys like harassing me about, you know, calling me the F slur and calling me gay or any number of things um, because I was just different. Like I just didn't like the th same things they did. And I didn't really gravitate to all those different areas that they did, or I didn't present as a full on masculine person or what is deemed as masculine in our society. Um, right. And what we know is that culturally, for like as far as the mainstream culture, we, especially in the South and in the Christian church, sex and gender are mutually exclusive, but we know that sex and gender are not, not always the same thing. Like the, you know, sex and attraction and all those different things don't have to be mutually exclusive. And so for the majority of men, we have internalized homophobia. And so same that I can speak from my experience, you know, I'm not, this story that I'm sharing right now as a gay man um, is not, I'm not a monolith. So I don't represent every single gay man, but I represent a space in which um, I can speak for my experience. And um, that that's a very prominent part of, I think for gay men is, is, um, especially me, was not only deconstructing the horrible views that I was taught, but also deconstructing the internalized homophobia that I harbored for so long, even though I didn't blatantly say it out loud, or it's just that, that, that cringe or that, you know, that when you, when you see that, or when you hear the words, or, you know, it's that, it's that, just that um, cultural norm that's been wired into most men um, growing up, you know, and um, I've been reading a book um, through this like coming out journey um, that I highly recommend. I'm still reading it. And it's, it's one of those reads you have to chew on, but um, it's called the velvet rage um, overcoming the pain of growing up uh, gay in a straight man's world um, by Dr. Alan Downs. Um, and he's a therapist in California and, he works with in a practice that specifically, you know, uh, serves uh, services gay men who are trying to overcome, you know, shame, um, and especially growing up uh, with that 
context of internalized homophobia. And the main thesis overall in the book is that, you know, um, the main prominent thing is that, you know, we, a lot of gay men, we harbor a lot of shame for, you know, who we are and that we are same-sex attracted. And um, one statement that like hit me so hard in the gut is that um, Down says that, um, let me get this right, is that um, it is not that the secret of a gay man is not that he's gay, but that he secretly hates himself. And that hit me because I feel like that resonated in most of my life, especially my young adult life, is that I secretly hated myself. I hated everything about myself. I felt like I had to be, have the best grades. I felt like I had to be um, performing the best. I felt like I ha- I wanted to be picked. You know, I wanted, I didn't, I wanted to distract everyone from what I thought that everyone could see that I was, you know, in the Christian world struggling behind closed doors with. And I didn't really have anybody to share that part of my life with that I felt like was safe. And I wish that I did have a school even that would give me that space. But in the South during that time, which was in the early 2000s, um, that was not really talked about. We didn't talk about those things. We didn't even in sex education, that wasn't even talked about as a like that there's other variations of sexuality and it just was not as rounded as I would like. I would love to have had guidance counselors that would be uh, more more affirming at that time and more welcoming in that space. And then I probably would have had a safe space to go. And um, I think out of my depression and out of that struggle, not only, you know, wondering is ministry where I'm supposed to be and all these other things is that, uh, you know, I was, I was, um, experiencing a lot of uh, suicidal ideations and I was cutting a lot and not a lot of people knew that I didn't share that part of my life very often with people. Um, I was very closed off in that way. And I just kind of pushed through and just made it feel like everything projected this of everything is okay. Um, and so when I got older and, you know, I, I decided to go to college, um, I felt as though that ministry was where I wanted to be. And um, the biggest reason for that, after I look back now, you know, why did you go into ministry? If someone asked, and I've had a lot of people ask is, you know, I've, I've always had a heart for helping people. And one of the main areas of ministry that I was always drawn to, and so uh, mesmerized, or whatever number of words you want to use to describe it is the social justice aspect of ministry. And while there has been different denominations and historically different churches across history that have not been so forgiving in that way. But learning about churches that did do those social social things like opening hospitals and orphanages and, you know, the w- first kind of welfare system before government really stepped on board and started taking those things on. And that was the biggest thing. And then I think it just was so natural for me. You know, people say, well, why didn't you just go to social work? And I was like, well, it's just, it It seemed like the next natural step because of the context I grew up in. My grandfather always encouraged it. And it was just something that I felt like was the right next step. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of where I've been with that. So. Nice. Um, I want to park on one point just for you know, a quick quick overview, if you will, um, just because maybe this will help somebody else. 
that idea of um, somebody's depression or anxiety or, um, you know, their ADHD or OCD or, you know, their, their struggles with their mental health and um, neurodiversity, which intersects with those things, right? That, that idea that you, you believe that, you know, your, your depression was your fault. Mm. How, what, what was, what did that journey look like of really dismantling that idea mm. about your own struggles, mm. your own depression and, yeah. and yearning and navigating away from that? Yeah, that's a hard, that's a hard thing. I mean, even when you're in that space and not having a place to turn that in depression, usually it's my fault. I'm the burden. Like you're in this perpetual state of just, you know, negativity and it it doesn't ever seem, at least for me, it never seemed like it stopped. And so as, and I've, I've struggled with depression majority of my life. And, um, in recent years, when I started really I've been in therapy for other years and for different things. I just went to therapy for situational things, not so much longevity or just having a therapist as a good thing, like whether it's meeting once a month or things like that. But I've, you know, integrated that in my life more over the years. And uh, so over the last couple of years, um, I've been meeting with the same therapist and we have been, you know, breaking through a lot of these barriers. And, you know, the biggest thing that, I know that I had to overcome with my depression and particularly my religious trauma, which can conflate each other in a lot of ways and feed off of each other, um, is that I had to learn how to be okay with who I was. And while that's not a hundred percent like now in my life, I think that there's a point it's like a light bulb that for me, I explain, kind of explain it that way. It was like, a sense of self-concept and I think that that's for me where it started was a a sense of self-concept like um and I think a lot of my uh, queerness um coming out had a lot of big part for me in being able to uh, to 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 handle it and being able to handle in a healthy way and channel it and not repress those feelings or not like because these feelings are normal um you know feeling sad or feeling down or remote or um morose or any number of words you want to use to express the emotion um and it's just learning how to channel them in a healthy way um and so that this will you know it'll always be an ebb and flow in my life of dealing with some kind of depression but for me, it started with that, just accepting, hey, Kyle, you know, you need to, you need to say something to somebody, like, just tell somebody you're not in that context anymore. You're not like that. This is like, you're getting to a point where this is eating away at you and you're not being able to live your full authentic self with people around you. Because I, from the majority of my life, when I kind of knew something was different and before I could even pinpoint, oh, I know what this is. I I shared a part of my life that was not authentic and I didn't get to share. It was just a half of Kyle. It wasn't the whole me, you know, like this and this. And also, I also happened to be a gay man. And so it was really hard, I think, to even develop relationships with people because I wasn't totally just my full self. I was always masking or 
Um, I found myself even in depression and uh, even when you're dealing with religious trauma as people pleasing, I felt like my people pleasing fed off of this need to, okay, I gotta, I gotta be, I gotta bring myself down here. Don't rock the boat, you know, just appear that everything's going okay. And this is me, you know, um, but that really did a disservice to me. And um, I remember when I first came out, it was this overwhelming sense of like, you know, and and right now my, and we'll get into that probably in this episode, but my, where I land as far as faith, or it's kind of not there right now, um, I would consider myself uh, to be an agnostic. Um, so for those of you, it's a very, a very common term, but if for those of you who don't know, it's in essentially it's that, you know, we cannot, as an agnostic, we can't prove or disprove that God exists or a divine exists. Um, and so for me and, and myself, so for, I think traditionally, I think I'll always land on there is some kind of divine power, you know, there, like, I think just traditionally and upbringing and growing up in the cultural context, I feel like there'll always be a connection to that tradition. Um, but for me, that faith has not been a predominant part of my life for the past several years as I've been de deconstructing. Um, and, uh, so, so to go back to what we we're talking about, but I felt like it was necessary to say that is that yeah. at that time when I came out, I felt this overwhelming spiritual sense. I can't explain it to you, but that it was almost like I was having a conversation with the divine and I was like, I need to do this. There was like this overwhelming sense of I need to do this. And I almost like, was like a inner monologue with myself of like, well, God, that means I'm gay. And it was like this sense of like, I know, and that's okay. And so that just rush of comfort that I think I've never felt in connection with deity ever, ever in my whole entire life that I made you this way and I love you and you are okay and everything's going to be okay. And that in itself, I feel like my queerness help me to reconcile my spirituality, my faith, and my sexuality um, was that that intersection of me and the divine. Like, I'm still me. The divine doesn't overwrite who I am. That that, that took, so if that makes sense, but, you know, yeah, it, totally. it's that part, it's like almost it's like a partnership that was happening um, rather than this oppressive, like, this is yourself. You have to deny yourself and carry your cross and do all these different things. I used to jump through all these hoops, even though Christian, most mainstream Christian denominations say, no, you can't do anything to earn salvation, but they make it that way. And that was probably the hardest part, I think, of my deconstruction journey was knowing that I did come out. How do I reconcile that faith that I once had to my sexuality? And after some of the process of working through that, I realized that that doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Like, I don't have to be gay and a Christian. I don't have to be gay and a Muslim. I don't have to be any number of religious faith, background, spirituality. It's okay if I don't land on a certain space and I don't have to, that doesn't have to be a part of my identity. And so I think that within those church contexts, being a Christian was so embedded in who you were and what you did and what you said and how you felt about yourself and what you, how you viewed God and man and depression and mental health. And like, I can, those things can be separate. 
you know? And so that was, that was a huge awe moment for me in my deconstruction journey was that, wow, like I can be gay and it'd be okay. Like that the, somehow the divine is not mad at me because that was the way I was made and that's the way I was created. And I mean, I've heard several people put it this way and it really moved me as uh, creators and like, you know, authors and things like that is that this, this may not that they all say the same thing, but like this mainstream that I would hear all the time is like, we ignore the creativity of God, like that God can be more creative than just saying, oh, I made male, a cisgendered male and a cisgendered female, and they're only straight, like that there's this, there's this color palette that God uses that <laughs> it's more than just the standard colors and that it's okay. And that there is a lot more beauty and diversity within a faith context or even in everyday life. That's why I talked about the complexity that I was so at odds with that complexity of like, you know, it just seems like God is more complex than just what we are taught. And so, yeah, yeah. totally, totally. So on the topic of deconstruction, when did that start for you? So, well, let me back up. It sounds like it started for you in high school. Yeah. You, you just didn't have that language, yeah. right? Or know what it was, really. Yeah. Right. You were already questioning things about God and humanity and your faith, etc. So when did you know that you were untangling, deconstructing things? And how did like it really like start when you knew it, you acknowledged it? Like this yeah. is what's happening. Yeah, like naming it. Yeah. I mean, I'd probably say that like my like where it's more like in that context of the word deconstructing would be when I was on staff at a, um, a church, um, it was my first staff position this full time. And, um, <clears throat> it was, uh, like I said, this was 2019 on to like 2020, 2021 in that time period, um, where I got this energizing feeling again, but I still was living in this space of like, I don't necessarily agree with what, all they're preaching. Um, and I was given the honor and privilege of leading um, our pastoral care um, area within the church. And first time ever that I experienced a church actually opening the doors to people. And when I say that, um, a part of the pastoral care, uh, you know, portion of this ministry. Can I, can was, I pause you for a second? Yeah. Cause I, cause I, I, I think this is important. Um, just put it, kind of in there at one point you said because I again I, I think this is important to kind of draw out you said that you disagreed with some things that were being said or being preached etc mm -hmm. right but you probably couldn't say that right because your income mm -hmm. was tied to yeah. your allegiance to mm -hmm. the pastor the preaching the teaching yeah. the doctor, obviously not only that but my ministerial position was a lot lower on the 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 hierarchical you know so I had to be in those positions you have to be a little bit more um 
closed mouth in a lot of ways. Um, and it's not that you have to be, it's just that it's implied. Um, and that the err of that executive level of like your lead poncho pastors, that it's just, I have to respect them. And that's what you were taught. And that's what you, you know, you were expected to do. And it was always this air when they walked in the room, it was always this, there was this big powerhouse that was walking in the room. And so, yeah, I would say, yeah, that. Okay, cool. Yeah. Continue. Like I said, I think that was yeah. just an important point to. Yeah, for sure. And, and so uh, the, I was at the pastoral care thing and, and we, um, had a program that we hadn't, you know, been really paying attention to that much. And it was like a care ministry that, um, that was, you know, a lot of different things. They had support groups. Um, they had, uh, different topics they were talking about. Um, we gather around, we talk about different things like mental health and trauma and things like that. And it was my, you know, kind of task to like take that and run with it and make it more broad and, and, and give it more, um, to be a better impact of the community. And so um, I had never heard of a church uh, opening up something as simple as we had a financial assistance portion of uh, the care ministry um, for hardship or any number of things like your house, you know, burned down or your a storm came through and your roof flew off or, hey, I'm behind on rent because of this, 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 or family health concerns and um, no church really does. And they call it in the church world, they call it the benevolence fund. It's an old churchy lingo, especially in the South. Um, but it was specifically and exclusively for members. So traditionally benevolence was always for those who either had a connection to that individual as a member, like it was a family member, or it was someone who was on the roll or made a promise or a covenant with the church to, uh, give. So you're giving, but you're also getting back. So that whole context of, which I always thought was just strange. Um, but we developed a, a resource that it would actually help people who don't even go to the church. And, hmm. um, so we got connected to a lot of social service, like organizations and they heard about it and, we connected with them and got really, and they would just send people to us as referrals. And I was in charge of that process. And um, the people that would come through those doors every day and I would hear their stories and um, the, and these people weren't all Christian or didn't identify with the faith, maybe traditionally or culturally as a Christian, but there were some complex concerns that I knew that the scriptures and Jesus would not fix it. Did it came back void? It did not. It, these were tangible needs of people that a spiritual wand could not fix. And mm -hmm. so that was a point I think that I that whole knowing growing up that there's just this I'm at odds with this belief of like who they say God is and who they say man is because how I saw God and how I saw man was. <laughs> totally different i saw god as a loving benevolent god who who loved everyone and accepted everyone because he created them divinely created them the word amago day right is that the word i haven't been in the lingo for a long time so made in the image of god yeah. and so why would god cause this person to suffer like why would god if he is a loving and benevolent god why would he do this and i know that 
those who are really staunchly within the theological space of the theology of suffering will argue that it's the suffering, it's the purification, it's the refiner's fire, whatever number of words you want to use to describe that, it's it's becoming more like Jesus. Or this person doesn't live the way that you do, so therefore they're going to hell. Why would a loving, <laughs> a loving God who created these people in his image send someone to hell? You know, like that, that, that was where that part came from. Like, what is this? What am, what am I, what is going on right now? Cause it's, it's a, it's a, it's a crisis of faith because you're, you're going against the grain of what everybody around you is saying, especially being in a ministerial context. If I were to share that, that would be like, like political suicide. Like you, it would be a horrible process like you would not be treated with respect at all um uh what college would be universalist yeah so it would be the image of the church not you it wouldn't be about you and what you're processing through but more how does this reflect reflect on us as the pastors and us as the church so i think that's when i started reading and then what you just said like universalist like that i started reading universalist thought I started, you know, diving into this context of heaven and hell and where did the traditional church fathers land on this, this topic. And then I started figuring out like, oh, well, the Jews, like ancient Jews from antiquity didn't even really have a concept of hell or didn't even think there was a physical place of heaven and hell. Um, And you go further and you look at like, I guess you say the early church, the first century where they had no context of heaven and hell or even scriptures for that matter, like written down on paper, what they believe and all this stuff like that. And, 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 and one of the, one of the saints, St. Gregory of Nyssa, there mm-hmm. was on the council of Nicaea, believed in universal salvation. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these we're, people that, they, that, that just means we're in good company, right? Right. And I mean, it, people who, most of the traditional theologians like will point to and quote and their writings and everything don't even they they will often I I went to a school where I studied a theological uh my undergraduate was in Christian education um it was it was very rooted in theology and it was skimmed over or it was said oh you know if, if an author was introduced it was like hey this guy's a little bit controversial read him but we're just doing this for you know the process of thought and you know read it and it was almost like this take it with a grain of salt and don't listen to everything just the parts that we agree with so it was like this almost thing where we're like we're gonna nitpick all these different things that align with where we are but we won't even explore where this person fell and we we often revere these individuals or these saints within the catholic church that we we you know we don't even realize that we have to look at the whole story before we can start saying oh this is what they believed um and so it's it's it, that's i think that's where it really so 2019 where i could actually name it and i could actually say okay this is what i'm doing was probably in those years so i'd say for the last 3 years would be the the deep diving the breaking apart those things um and the next natural step was i feel like was me coming out and embracing that part of myself um yeah so yeah where in the in that journey of of you know deconstructing and 
I mean, just being in that. I mean that that's a that's a hard spot to be in. Where okay, there's there's things that I don't agree theologically with the church I'm on staff at, but I can't say that out loud. Being in that that space and context, and then 2019 being being able to name, oh, like this is what's happening. Um, question some things. I'm probably going to progress at some point, you know, mm-hmm. to a different position or belief on fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Navigating that, like, and the intersection of mental health, and then like probably realizing through that there there's some there's some trauma like religious trauma that's you know Kyle may have not known about that is coming out of this deconstruction mm-hmm. like what what was that like navigating being in that space then like deconstructing kind of happening to you having this crisis of faith probably some things coming up for you what did that journey look like for Kyle mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd say like the common cores of like some of that trauma that I impact, like the common things that would come up would be, I always felt like I had to be something for someone else, but I could never be something for myself, if that makes sense. Um, I always had to be so self-sacrificial that I would, I would totally ignore um, the parts of myself that needed help and I would always be the guy who was rushing at 1 a.m 2 a.m in the morning to help someone who was dealing with you know I mean even in college like I was always that guy that was the guy who would answer and like be there for someone and um I wouldn't let everybody else see that in me and I know that near the end of my college years you could that people could start seeing that and I know you could see that um but I think it started with that as like what am I doing for me? Like, is there something that, you know, I've been taught so long that, you know, take up your cross and, you know, deny yourself and turn the other cheek. And, you know, I have to do all these things um, to help people and I'll find rest in heaven one day, you know, I'll be, you know, beaten, bruised and be like Paul or whoever a number of people want to list off that you could be emulate. But, um, or Jesus, or any number of those things. Um, but where do I fit in in this story? Like, and and coming to the realization that it's okay that I'm sitting down to think about me for a change. It's okay. And what do I want? You know, what do, how do I want to feel safe? Like, what makes me feel safe? What makes me feel loved? Um, what do I want in a, a friendship or a romantic partner or what do I want for my life? And so that was a big one. I'd say number one was just finding myself again. Um, The next one was just like being okay with not knowing. Um, And I think that the core root of like, I think growing up in that faith tradition is like, you got to know, you got to have the right answers. You got to know. Um, even though they wouldn't answer them, but you know, you got to be firm on your doctrine and you have to be firm on your theology. And I feel like being saying to myself, okay, Kyle, it's okay that you don't know. Um, because there's a lot of things in life that outside of faith that we just don't know, that we find out new things every single day. Science finds out things every single day that we never knew and it changes our perspective. History, um, new historical discoveries are found every day. 
And um, yeah, uh, and I would say the next one would be like, you know, am I okay with letting go of those uh, things, people, traditions, organizations that were so nostalgic for me and that had so much, so many, there were so many good memories, I think, minus some of the traumatic experiences that I I had. Am I, am I okay with letting go of that to be safe, to feel safe, to not be re-traumatized or not be triggered or not continually being this perpetuate, perpetuate state of being harmed? Um, Am I okay with that? So I guess those are three core things I feel like when I was working through my trauma that I feel like were so important to me that have brought me where I am today although I have not arrived uh, right I feel like that gave me that push to do all these things that I've been doing like questioning and um, just being willing to not only deconstruct things within my faith but also you know I've, I've been in social service after leaving um you know, prior to uh, being on ministerial staff and after I worked in a lot of social service settings. And that's probably one of the reasons that they had given me the keys to do the pastoral care portion, um, being that I wasn't on a higher staff rung, um, but uh, really passionate about, you know, sociology and breaking down some of these things that we've been dealing with in 2020 that have just like have been resurfacing as far as social justice and where does all these things, where are all these things lie? Where are the roots? Where are the connections? And uh, I began to really be really digging deep to uh, SEL and, you know, CRT and uh, just sociology in general. And uh culture, how it affects people, and then looking at power and privilege dynamic, what is equity and what is inclusion, and, you know, um, that whole understanding of, like, okay, I've had understanding dynamics of, like, there are some privileges that give me power over someone else just because of the color of my skin, or that I lived as a straight man for majority of my life. And so therefore I benefited from some of those things. I'm college educated. Um, I didn't really grow up poor per se. Um, While I didn't grow up with everything because I had a single mother, I didn't go without. And so learning those, like that really helped, I think my deconstruction journey as well as looking outside of other and other spaces that are really informative um, and other, you know, schools of thought and, you know, sciences and stuff like that, uh, that has been a really big um, area where it was like, okay, there's more to this than just, than just the Bible, like, and when it's been written over 2000 years ago by people and places that we cannot understand, theologians and scholar, biblical scholars, they try all the time to try to pinpoint a context one another, but these people who wrote these scriptures were simply just trying to write a narrative of who they believed God is and explaining what they were experiencing in an esoteric and an agrarian world. We don't live in an esoteric, meaning stars, you know, celestials, you know, sometimes even magic, like, you know, these concepts that we don't understand now. Uh, that we are beginning to rediscover in, in, in some areas and some contexts, but 
it will never be the purest form that it was back then. Um, we've lost so much knowledge since antiquity. I mean, I use this with you all the time, Jonathan, this example, like, you know, the, the um, Library of Alexandria, which was like the main hub of like all this knowledge in the ancient world was burned. We lost so much, you know, I mean, we were finding things new every single day. Um, and yeah, I think that the one thing that I think maddened me on this deconstruction journey is that even growing up, I was taught this narrative or this history of how this country is so great and we have all these freedoms and it's the best place in the world. And then starting learning about, okay, well, it's only been, and when you put it into context, like it's only been maybe 60 years since the civil rights movement. Um, and the same for that matter, uh, the gay liberation uh, movement and wasn't that long ago in World War II we had internment camps for Japanese American citizens and go back before that we had schools that would remove native people from their homes and essentially kill them off in the sense of their language their religious practices their religious places of worship their land. I mean, and then you start saying, okay, do we really live in the greatest country in the world? And so all these things just started stirring in me. And now I just won't be quiet. Like now it's just kind of like, it's just word vomit now. And I, it, to me, I feel as though if you grow closer to Jesus, you'll care about the, this stuff, <laughs> you know, because that's what Jesus was all about. And <laughs> he was about breaking the uh yoke of oppression which was at that time the roman empire um and even in religious yokes he was breaking and so we 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 make jesus out to be this white straight cisgendered male that carries the american flag and that is not who jesus was so yeah yeah he was a. Uh, I mean i i fully believe Nonviolent, but nonviolent, subversive. Hmm. I mean, he was definitely subversive. Hmm. Um, so, so one, you, you're just preaching now. Hmm. Two, you, you're don't get me started. Don't get me started. <laughs> you're, you're basically saying you're a woke commie Marxist. Hmm. Basically, <laughs> I'm just kidding, man. Well, thanks for, you know, sharing all that and, um, I mean, just sharing that part of your story, you know, publicly here that I want to land this plane on. Mm -hmm. So, you, you fully came out on who Kyle Ridgely was. Um you said 2021? I believe so. Yeah, it was 2021. Yeah. So take us mm -hmm. through um that, if you will, um that process. Um and where's Kyle at now after um uh, not that yeah. long 2021. For sure. Well, I want to preface with that, you know, this is just my story, my experience. Um, everybody's coming out story is different. 
has its own sets of, <laughs> you know, things that go on and things they have to navigate um, in their own context. So this is just my experience. I don't speak for everyone. Um, but for me coming out, it was probably one of the most scariest things in my whole entire life. I will, I will, I will tell you that. Um, and being younger, I could imagine it probably would be even more scarier when you're trying to figure out who you are and identity and being accepted. And then me coming out as an adult where I've built this reputation and I've built this life of this is I'm the straight white Kyle, cisgendered male. Um, and how will people view me? You know, how will people look at me now um, after this? So uh, a lot of it was just the first person I came out to you was John was you, Jonathan. Um, and that was probably the most nerve wracking uh, process of my whole entire life, being an, another cisgendered male that we have been friends for so long and having that past trauma of how straight cisgendered males have treated me in the past, even when I wasn't out. Um, that was a scary feeling. Um, and you're very gracious in hearing it, hearing it out. I remember the funniest thing was when I told you, you thought that I had been talking about immigrating for so long to like the UK. You said, I thought you were going to tell me that you were immigrating. <laughs> like it was just I like, okay. Oh, okay. Well, great. That takes a huge load off me. Uh, I don't, don't have to deal with all the, the heaviness after. So that was a little levity in the conversation. Um, and then obviously just coming out to my friends and they were really supportive. So I don't think I had um, that was uh, that was a blessing, and um, it was great for me that I had supportive friendships. That when I did come out, it wasn't this immediate like it wasn't drawn away from me. It was more like, hey, I want to hear your you out, like you know, and I want to hear your story, and gave me that, that space to share that. And so I was very privileged to um, have had that experience. Um, then I came out to my you know my family, um, particularly my mother. I haven't come out to everyone in my family, but. Um, ones that I talk to mostly, which is my mother. And um, that's been a process, um, you know, knowing me, you know, she's known me all my life. So, you know, you and my friends, Jonathan, you know, you've only known me maybe 10 years of those, you know, and so, um, and some shorter than that. So um, that was a process, of course. Um, and then just, just living in the context where now uh, it was kind of a little bit more the tension wasn't high around these topics um, when I did come out. I mean, they were starting to, but now in 2023, the volume's been turned up on these, uh, especially those who don't, uh, that might be hateful towards um, the LGBTQ community and um, have been using vintage things from the 60s that were used against uh, those in the gay liberation front and you know, the spring up of Stonewall and all these things. So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting time to live in that, um, that, you know, I didn't expect when I came out that this would be something that I'd have to navigate. And, and, and some degree, um, there was still a lot of work to do even after that, when we had, you know, gay marriage uh, was made legal in 2015 um, you know, in the fight for, you know, trying to uh, get rid of that uh, preposition eight in California. And I mean, there's, there's still always work to do, but I felt like when I came out, I felt like it was a little bit more, it wasn't the topic of conversation that everybody had anymore. Um, so that's been a little interesting, like reading all these things and, and having to think about now, like, 
not only do I have to find a job wherever I go, I have to also be concerned about, uh, is this place safe for me to be? Like, is it safe for me to be who I am in this context or that context? And will will my rights be violated? Will my life be in danger? And so that's a dynamic that I haven't had to think about as a cisgendered white male um, in America, and especially a Christian. I haven't had to had to inadvert, inadvertently experience that before. So that's something that I'm, you know, getting used to navigating and um, and rightly so, you know, frustrated and wanting to stand up and fight against all these anti-LGBTQ bills and um, but also knowing that I can only do so much and I have to be aware of my mental health too. And so, um, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of like where I'm at with like, I guess, navigating the coming out experience now and to now, you know, um, so. To now saying it publicly here. Again, so this is the first time I'm coming out on a platform. So um, I haven't been vocal on any social media platforms. I'm, I'm really over the years, I've just not been social media. I've just been the guy who looks at everything and doom scrolls. <laughs> um, so that's me. Um, I'm not the guy. And and I have been a little more vocal in some ways when I do see some things that were kind of healing for me to just stand up and say, no, this is wrong. Um, that was just a healing process for me on some really bigoted comments from people that I used to go to school with and people in my past. Um, but I've learned that that's just not, it's not the the right place because it's not going to be heard. It's going to be, you know, um, but it it is something that uh, have to navigate, of course. Um, but yeah, but yeah, this is the first plat first platform, I guess, public platform where everybody can, you know, see it into my life and hear my story. And and I'm doing that for this audience because I feel like, especially those who have been with us from the beginning and have seen our journey we want we want you to be a part of that and the celebration that we have been celebrating since day one of this change and this growth and this evolution of who we are as people um and also our podcasts which evolved with us and i always say all the time that this has been like my public journal in a sense like it's been healing for me um and i know my therapist even encouraged me like hey this like because i talk about the podcast all the time and how healing it's been for me she, you know she was like you definitely should come out on your podcast and we've been talking about it for the past like almost two years that I've been out and like that public it was heavy because it's like coming out all over again so coming out again it's it's that same feeling of like you know um of that that coming out to even an individual this is a larger scale so um yeah ma'am well Kyle thanks for letting our listeners just peer into your life and your journey and i know there was some hard things in there but some things that are going to help somebody um you know that again that 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 was one of my hopes for us both sharing our journeys that somebody will receive some encouragement they can mm. maybe see some part of their journey in ours mm. you know in the way that we've navigated that certain part etc they'll they'll see some encouragement and some useful things out of that so thanks for sharing man and just just being 
being open and, and vulnerable with this. Just to kind of close this out, what is two things that you could encourage or give somebody for their own mental health, deconstruction, et cetera, journey that you've learned from your own journey? Hmm. Uh, well, I'd say this is pretty cliche statement and we say it all the time, but it is so important and just find people to do it with or find people who, if they're not doing it themselves, that accept just where you're at and are a safe space that you can vent to or that you can share your frustrations of like not knowing and 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 feeling all these emotions and because because you're going to be reliving these as you're as you're doing this you're going to be reliving some things that are going to be hard and if you've already been doing that process you probably have experienced those feelings and so I would encourage just find someone who just it's a safe space whether they are deconstructing or they're not just find that safe person um also I can never like recommend this enough but like you know if you feel comfortable you know, try to find, you know, therapists, um, you know, someone who you can talk to or a mentor or like a coach, a life coach, something, someone who can help you like organize everything. Cause I mean, in this process, it's like, so it's like how you feel like you're going to go to this and this and this, and it's like, excuse me, it's all kind of all over the place, you know, and you got to have somebody to help you kind of organize those thoughts and like put them in a healthy space. Um, and I know right now the the struggle is, is, and I've experienced it. Many of us have that mental health services can be really expensive, very, very expensive. And that is not always an option for everyone. Um, and there are resources that we pinned uh, and Jonathan, I'm pretty sure you can, pin some some resources in the show notes for those um, affordable uh, costs, you know, mental health services. And and if you can't yeah. do that, uh, there's definitely support groups in your area. I mean, check out, I mean, for my context, like uh, if you if you are questioning, you know, your sexuality and you're also deconstructing, there's PFLAG parents. And I can never remember the acronym, but that's a, it's a organization specifically for parents, but to navigate that of their child, you know, coming out, but also they offer other resources as well for teens and other young adults that are coming out. Yeah. Um, Isn't it it parents, friends, and families for lesbians and gays? I believe so. I believe I always have to look it up because I always butcher it terribly and I don't like to butcher it. But um, but yeah, there's plenty of of resources out there and support groups in your area um, that are that are available um, easily a Google search uh, uh, for sure. And we'll we'll put some put some resources in the show notes so you can check those out. But um, those are big two things is like finding people. Uh, that are that are that are in your corner that make you feel safe finding someone to talk to whether that could be a mentor coach um, support groups um, even you know interest groups in your area that you know that are walking through the same thing that you are and then also these platforms I mean uh, online platforms have become the norm for many people who are deconstructing and also who are just navigating any number of topics or struggles or any number of things uh, that podcasts, I mean, uh, 
groups there's groups on facebook that you can search that um that you can be involved in and join and and, and share your thoughts and 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 find resources and things like that so those are the two big things like don't don't do it don't do it alone it's 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 hard enough doing it in general like being able to deconstruct and 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 going through this process um but you know find those people find those people for sure yeah that's good yeah and i'll I'll definitely link the ones that you mentioned cow um and you know as always if uh, you're having a hard time you know finding those resources or you know i've been just in you know funks before where i could it was hard for me to actually do the work, you know, and if that's the space you're in, like our Instagram is always linked down below. You can reach out to us. We'll talk to you and help you navigate that in any way that we can. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. As far if we don't as have help- a resource, we can definitely work hard to find it, find it for you, give you some good resources for what you need for sure. For sure. Awesome. Well, Kyle, thanks again for um, sharing your journey with us, sharing your story, and um, trusting us with that big piece of your story. Um, a lot of courage there and sharing that. Proud of you. Um, yeah. So any final words? I think we, we covered a lot in this episode. It was a pretty long episode, this one. So, but um yeah. Yeah. Happy Pride Month for those who identify in the LGBTQ community. And Heck yeah. Um, but we'll see you on the next episode. Absolutely. Thanks for coming to our table, guys. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, if you love our content, if you want to hear more of it, the biggest thing that you can do for us is leave us a review and if you want to you don't have to um, just jot a little note let us know what you think about a particular episode or the podcast overall that will be super helpful to us we would be so grateful if you do that as love al- to hear feedback for sure yes yes as always thanks for coming to our table and we will catch you guys on the next episode